Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I want to thank you for listening and remind you that we have over 3,400 audios on this site. We've got preachers and stories from North Korea and other lands, Bible studies. You can actually go to Google Play Store and Apple Store and download the Church One app for sermon audio and enter Hackberry House. My books are on Amazon.com. And you can contact me at bob.j.falconer.72 at gmail.com. Reading today from the life of John G. Patton. Let's get right to it. We're going to the New Hebrides today. On the 1st of December, 1857, being then in my 33rd year, the other missionary designate and I were licensed as preachers of the gospel, Thereafter, we spent four months in visiting and addressing nearly every congregation and Sabbath school in the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Scotland, that the people might see us and know us, and thereby take a personal interest in our work. On the 23rd of March, 1858, in Dr. Symington's church, Glasgow, in presence of a mighty crowd, and after a magnificent sermon on Come Over and Help Us, we were solemnly ordained as ministers of the gospel and set apart as missionaries to the New Hebrides. On the 16th April of the same year, we left the tail of the bank at Greenock and set sail in the Clutha for the foreign mission field. Our voyage to Melbourne was rather tedious, but ended prosperously under Captain Broadfoot, a kindly, brave-hearted Scot, who did everything that was possible for our comfort. He himself led the singing on board at worship, which was always charming to me and was always regularly conducted, on deck when the weather was fair, below when it was rough. I was also permitted to conduct Bible classes amongst both the crew and the passengers, at times and places approved of by the captain, in which there was great joy. Arriving at Melbourne, we were welcomed by Reverend Mr. Moore, Mr. and Mrs. Samuel Wilson, and Mr. Wright, all Reformed Presbyterians from Geelong. Mr. Wilson's two children, Jesse and Donald, had been under our care during the voyage, and my young wife and I went with them for a few days on a visit to Geelong, while Mr. Copeland remained on board the Clutha to look after our boxes and to watch for any opportunity of reaching our destination on the islands. He heard that an American ship, the Francis P. Sage, was sailing from Melbourne to Penang, and the captain agreed to land us on Anitium, New Hebrides, with our two boats and 50 boxes for a 100 pounds. We got on board on the 12th of August, but such a gale blew that we didn't sail until the 17th. On the Clutha, all was quiet, and good order prevailed. In the F.P. Sage, all was noise and profanity. The captain said he kept his second mate for the purpose of swearing at the men and knocking them about. The voyage was most disagreeable to all of us, but fortunately it lasted only twelve days. On the 29th, we were close up to Anitium, but the uh, captain refused to land us, even in his boats some of us suspecting that his men were so badly used that they had got on shore that they would never uh, have returned to him. In any case, he had beforehand secured his 100 pounds. 
He lay off the island till a trader's boat pulled across to see what we wanted, and by it we sent a note to Dr. Getty, uh, one of the missionaries there. Early next morning, Monday, he arrived in his boat, accompanied by Mr. Matheson, a newly arrived missionary from Nova Scotia, bringing also Captain Anderson in the small mission schooner, the John Knox, and a large mission boat called the Columbia, well manned with crews of able and willing natives. Our fifty boxes were soon on board the John Knox, the Columbia, and our own boats, all being heavily loaded and built up, except those that had to be used in pulling the others ashore. Dr. Getty, Mr. Matheson, Mrs. Patton, and I were perched among the boxes on the John Knox and had to hold on as best we could. On shearing off from the F.P. Sage, one of her Davids caught and broke the mainmast of the little John Knox by the deck, and I saved my wife from being crushed to death by its fall through managing to swing her instantaneously aside in an apparently impossible manner. It did graze Mr. Matheson, but, but he was not hurt. The John Knox, already overloaded, was thus quite disabled. We were about ten miles at sea and in imminent danger. But the captain of the F.P. Sage heartlessly sailed away and left us to struggle with our fate. We drifted steadily in the direction of Tana, an island of cannibals, where our goods would have been plundered and all of us cooked and eaten. Dr. Getty's boat and mine had the John Knox in tow, in tow excuse me, and, and Mr. Copeland, with a crew of natives, was struggling hard with his boat to pull the Columbia and her load towards Anitium. As God mercifully ordered it, though we had a stiff trade wind to pull against, we had a comparatively calm sea, yet we drifted still to leeward until Dr. Inglis, going around to the harbor in his boat, as he had heard of our arrival, saw us far at sea and, and hastened to our rescue. All the boats now, with their willing native crews, got fastened to our schooner, and to our great joy she began to move ahead. After pulling for hours and hours under the scorching rays of a tropical sun, we were all safely landed on shore at Anitium about six o'clock in the evening of 30th August, just four months and fourteen days since we sailed from Greenock. We got a hearty welcome from the missionaries' wives, Mrs. Getty, Mrs. Inglis, and Mrs. Matheson, and, and from all our new friends, the, the Christian natives of Anitium, and the great danger in which both life and property had been placed at the close of our voyage made us praise God all the more that he had brought us to this quiet resting place around which lay the islands of the New Hebrides, to which our eager hearts had looked forward and into which we entered now in the name of the Lord. Mr. Copeland, Mrs. Patton, and I went around the island to Dr. Inglis's station, where we were most cordially received and entertained by his dear lady and by the Christian natives there. As he was making several additions to his house at that time, we received for the next few weeks our first practical and valuable training in mission house-building, as well as in higher matters. Soon after, a meeting was called to consult about our settlement, and by the advice and with the concurrence of all, Mr. and Mrs. Matheson from Nova Scotia 
were located on the south side of Tana at Umorekar, and Mrs. Patton and I at Port Resolution on the same island. At first it was agreed that Mr. Copeland should be placed along with us, but owing to the weekly state, that is W-E-A-K, weak state, of Mrs. Matheson's health, it was afterwards resolved that, uh, for a time at least, Mr. Copeland should live at either station as seemed most suitable or most requisite. Dr. English and a number of his most energetic natives accompanied us to Umorerica, Tana, forgive me for uh, messing up these uh, names. Uh, it's, I believe, Umorerica. I better get used to that one. There we purchased a site for a mission house and church and laid a stone foundation and advanced as far as practicable uh, the erection of a dwelling for Mr. and Mrs. Matheson. Thence we proceeded to Port Resolution, Tana, and similarly I purchased a site and advanced to a forward stage the house which Mrs. Patton and I were to occupy on our settlement there. Lime, for plastering, had to be burned in kills from the coral rocks, and thatch, for roofing with sugarcane leaf, had to be prepared by the natives at both stations before our return, for which, as for all else, a price was duly agreed upon and was scrupulously paid. Unfortunately, we learned, when too late, that both houses were too near the shore, exposed to unwholesome miasma and productive of the dreaded fever, the most virulent and insidious enemy to all Europeans in those southern seas. Let's move to chapter 11. First Impressions of heathendom. My first impressions drove me, I must confess, to the verge of utter dismay. On beholding these natives in their paint and nakedness and misery, my heart was as full of horror as of pity. Had I given up my much-beloved work and my dear people in Glasgow with so many delightful associations to consecrate my life to these degraded creatures? Was it possible to teach them right and wrong, to Christianize or even to civilize them? But that was only a passing feeling. I soon got as deeply interested in them and in all that tended to advance them and to lead them to the knowledge and love of Jesus as ever I had been in my work at Glasgow. We were surprised and delighted at the remarkable change produced on the natives of Anetium through the instrumentality of Drs. Getty and English in, in so short a time. And we hoped, by prayerful perseverance in the use of similar means, to see the same work of God repeated on Tana. Besides, the wonderful and blessed work done by Mrs. English and Mrs. Getty at their stations filled our wives with the buoyant hope of being instruments in the hand of God to produce an equally beneficent change amongst the savage women of Tana. Mrs. Patton had been left with Mrs. Inglis to learn all she could from her of mission work on the islands until I returned with Dr. Inglis from the house-building operations on Tana, during which period Mr. and Mrs. Matheson were also being instructed by Dr. and Mrs. Getty. To the Tannies, Dr. Inglis and I were objects of curiosity and fear, 
They came crowding to gaze on our wooden and lime-plastered house. They chattered incessantly with each other and left the scene day after day with undisguised and increasing wonderment. Possibly they thought us rather mad than wise. Party after party of armed men going and coming in a state of great excitement, we were informed that war was on foot. But our Aeneatomese teachers were told to assure us that the harbor people would only act on the defensive and that no one would molest us at our work. One day, two hostile tribes met near our station. High words arose, and old feuds were revived. The inland people withdrew. But the harbor people, false to their promises, flew to arms and rushed past us in pursuit of their enemies. The discharge of muskets in the adjoining bush and the horrid yells of the savages soon informed us that they were engaged in deadly fights. Excitement and terror were on every countenance. Armed men rushed about in every direction with feathers in their twisted hair, with faces painted red, black, and white, and some, one cheek black, the other red, others the brow white, the chin blue, in fact, any color and on any part, the more grotesque and savage-looking, the higher the art. Some of the women ran with their children to places of safety, but even then we saw other girls and women on the shore close by, chewing sugarcane and chaffering and laughing as, as if their fathers and brothers had been engaged in a country dance instead of a bloody conflict. In the afternoon, as the sounds of the muskets and the yelling of the warriors came unpleasantly near to us, Dr. Inglis, leaning against a post for a little while in silent prayer, looked on us and said, The walls of Jerusalem were built in troublous times, and why not the mission house on Tana? But let us rest for this day and pray for these poor heathen. We retired to a native house that had been temporarily granted to us for rest, and there pled before God for them all. The noise and the discharge of muskets gradually receded, as if the inland people were retiring, and towards evening the people around us returned to their villages. We were afterwards informed that five or six men had been shot dead, that their bodies had been carried by the conquerors from the field of battle, and cooked and eaten that very night at a boiling spring near the head of the bay, less than a mile from the spot where my house was being built. We had also a more graphic illustration of the surroundings into which we had come through Dr. Inglis's Anitium boy, who accompanied us as cook. When our tea was wanted next morning, the boy could not be found. After a while of great anxiety on our part, he returned saying, Missy, this is a dark land. The people of this land do dark works. At the boiling spring they have cooked and feasted upon the slain. They have washed the blood into the water. and They have bathed there, polluting everything. I cannot get pure water to make your tea. What shall I do? Well, Dr. English told him that he must try for water elsewhere until the rains came and cleansed away the pollution, and that meanwhile, instead of tea, we would drink from the cocoa nut, as they had often done before. The lad was quite relieved. 
It, it not a little astonished us, however, to see that his mind regarded their killing and eating each other as a thing scarcely to be noticed, but that it was horrible that they should spoil the water. How much are even our deepest instincts the creatures of mere circumstances? I, if trained like him, would probably have felt like him. Next morning, as we sat talking about the people and the dark scenes around us, the quiet of the night was broken by a wild wailing cry from the villages around, long-continued and unearthly. We were informed that one of the wounded men carried home from the battle had just died, and that they had strangled his widow to death, that her spirit might accompany him to the other world and be his servant there, as she had been here. Now their dead bodies were laid side by side, ready to be buried in the sea. Our hearts sank to think of all this happening within earshot, and that we knew it not. Every new scene, every fresh incident, set more clearly before us the benighted condition and shocking cruelty of these people, and we longed to be able to speak to them of Jesus and the love of God. We eagerly tried to pick up every word of their language that we might, in their own tongue, unfold to them the knowledge of the true God and of salvation from all these sins through Jesus Christ. Next time we'll get to chapter 12, which is called Breaking Ground on Tenna. I do hope you'll rejoin me at that time. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun, Lord willing. We'll get to talk again real soon. Bye-bye.